Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, March 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as cases of COVID-19 continue to rise, UMMC is working with the Department of Health to ramp up testing and how the coronavirus creates complications for dialysis patients. Then, mental health in the world of distancing and isolation. That's now on Mississippi Edition MPB Think Radio. Cases of COVID-19 in Mississippi rose to a total of 758 over the weekend. That's over three and a half times more than last week, with the number expected to grow. One possible reason for the increased number of confirmed cases is the wider availability of testing. Joining us now is Dr. Alan Jones. He's chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Good morning, Dr. Jones. Good morning. UMMC is working with the Department of Health and the coronavirus response team to ramp up testing with both mobile testing centers and a new in-house test kit. Tell us about these developments, if you would. Yes, so for our testing locations, we're working with the Department of Health to have an intake process through a telehealth app that is um, through Ceasefire. It's called Ceasefire Health. UMMC COVID-19 virtual triage that can be downloaded from the App Store, uh, the Apple App Store, and we also have a phone number available for those that don't have smartphones. You call into the app and you're screened by a provider, and if you are deemed to be high risk, then you can be scheduled for a a mobile testing site. We're doing uh, the Mississippi State Fairgrounds uh, seven days a week. And then various other areas as determined by the Department of Health around the state. Uh, Last week we did DeSoto and Cahoma counties. Um, Tomorrow we will do a site in Vicksburg and Greenwood. And then on uh, Thursday we have a site in Picayune and Natchez. Uh, It's a drive-through clinic, so after you're scheduled, you'll be given a time to show up. And you'll just drive your car straight up. You'll have the test performed in your car by a healthcare professional. And then uh, that test will be sent off. And once it results, then you'll be contacted about the result. Dr. Jones, if a person uh, chooses to go through the app and get their screening that way, how are they notified that they qualify or should get a test? And does the person then schedule that test or is that provided through the app? So you would be notified that you would qualify for the test by the uh, person that you're 
speaking to through the app, and then you would get a follow-up text message and or phone call giving you the exact details of the testing location as well as the time and uh, a unique identifier code to present when you show up for the test. Louisiana has a, a large number of those who've tested positive. How concerned should we be about what's happening there? Well, I think we should be pretty concerned uh, from the perspective of the proximity that we have to particularly New Orleans and then the number of uh, people that have some type of roots or contact in Mississippi from New Orleans. And uh, I think that, that citizens may be moving out of New Orleans into other areas, obviously the Gulf Coast. Um, and straight up the I-55 corridor, we should definitely be concerned about the fact that that is, um, you know, a hotbed of activity. If you look at the northeast in New York City, a lot of it is spread out now into uh, New Jersey and, and Massachusetts, and that's typically the way these things work is they'll expand out in a regional uh, type of an environment. So I think we should we should be t- closely watching what's going on in New Orleans and um, being concerned about it. Currently, I think the most cases are in DeSoto County, which is a suburb of Memphis. Hines County also showing a lot, but it's a metropolitan area. The Gulf Coast, while it does have more cases than other parts of the state, can we expect that to peak with people coming in from Louisiana or people from Mississippi coming back from Louisiana? I think you... We'll start to see some rises uh, in that area, and particularly as we move more resources to testing uh, in these various areas that seem to be have the potential for higher activity, I believe you'll begin to see uh, rises in cases. You brought up DeSoto County. It's, you know, the, that's the other thing that we need to consider is that we're kind of pinched between Memphis and New Orleans, so it's also possible that you'll see some of the of the citizens from DeSoto County moving down into Mississippi, too. So that's another source of concern. Dr. Jones, we hear about different parts of the country reaching its peak. Can you foresee when that might happen in Mississippi? Looking at some of the various models that have been done uh, on a national level using state data, as well as some internal modeling that we've done, we anticipate that Uh, And, of course, there's a margin of error with this. We anticipate that the earliest we may see a peak uh, would be mid-April, around the 14th or so, and the latest would be the first week in May. So that's about a three-week window. Um, If I had to give you my best guess based on numbers that I'm seeing, I would think it would be late April. Uh, when Mississippi could expect to see its peak. But there's also a lot of variables and assumptions that go into that. So it is is more of a guess than than a fact. Once that peak arrives, wherever it is in the time period you just gave us, how long after that, when cases uh, dwindle, is it safe to come out of our homes and and the uh, distancing, the social distancing? Well, you have to get low down on the backside of the curve of the incidents in order to 
for social distancing to really be effective. So after we see the peak, you could expect about the same amount of time on the backside that would really be needed in order to make the social distancing aspect of what we're trying to accomplish be most effective. So realistically, you may be looking at six to eight weeks on the backside of that. Um, Of course, that's using what was done in China and uh, North Korea and some of the, uh, excuse me, South Korea and some of the earlier countries that, that faced this. So possibly we're looking at the end of May to June before you know, there's some more relaxation of, of the types of social distancing policies and procedures that have been suggested. The health department's numbers indicate that currently a third of Mississippi's COVID-19 cases require hospitalization. Do we have the beds and the PPE to maintain care at that rate? So I would say that if it continues at the current rate, it's expected, at least from the models that I've seen based on our bed availability and our ventilator availability, that we should be at a um, what would be considered a break-even. So we should have enough beds and ventilators, but that also makes the assumption that the, that the incidence and the case rate and the case fatality rate stays about what we've seen. So if there's any one variable that changes with that, we could become overwhelmed. You've said uh, that people should go through the app or, or call. How many people, though, are bypassing that and coming directly to the emergency room, which I know they're not supposed to do? We do see a fair number of people that come in uh, to the emergency room. We do have a process where we're trying to screen those patients uh, up front prior to entry, and if it is that they are there just for testing, then we try to direct them to the appropriate locations for testing and mechanisms for doing that. But there are a subset of patients that still will need uh, to have care because they're worsening or they have symptoms that are concerning. So I would say that we've seen a, an uptick in the number of individuals coming in for these types of complaints. And uh, some should be there and some we think could be, you know, tested or seen at an alternate facility. So we're, we're working diligently to work through that process as, as well as we can. For those who need to be hospitalized because they're sick enough to be in the hospital, how is their admittance being handled? Are other visitors uh, or people who are in and out of the hospital being protected, the people who work in the hospital as they enter? Yes, we're taking a lot of precautions with our workforce. Obviously, uh, we're limiting the number of visitors that can come in. We're not letting symptomatic visitors uh, on the facility grounds, and we're limiting the number of visitors a patient can have. And then in some of the areas where we would intake higher-risk patients, we are instituting also something called reverse isolation, which would be Uh, the patient themselves would be put in a mask in order to prevent the spread, as well as our healthcare providers being uh, afforded the the appropriate protective uh, gear that they need. At this point, are COVID patients being placed in a different floor, being isolated within the hospital? 
Yes, the best practice for these patients is to cohort them in certain areas of the hospital so that we have staff that are uh, you know, trained and comfortable taking care of the patients. So we have designated uh, several different units in our hospital as where we are starting uh, with those patients. Now, if we have a massive influx of patients, we'll have to expand that, but we're trying to keep them in one area so that we are able to pay, you know, the careful, meticulous attention that we need to to keep both them and our staff safe uh, through the process of caring for them. I want to ask you finally, there's a lot of stress and, and nervousness around this for people. I want to go over this again. If someone is exposed to another person who has tested positive, they are to self-quarantine for 14 days, as I understand. What if someone is in contact with the person who is in contact with the infected person? Do they need to self-quarantine or do something differently? So because we have such a widespread community activity now, um, the most important thing is to watch yourself for symptoms. And the, at, at the first development of a symptom that would be consistent with COVID-19, such as a low-grade fever or even a higher fever, uh, cough, uh, sore throat, uh, the, the best advice is to immediately put yourself in isolation at that point. If, if you have had close contact with an individual that has it, meaning you've been uh, in proximity where you've been coughed on or you've shared doorknobs or those types of things, the best advice is to keep yourself in isolation uh, to make sure that and away from that individual to make sure you're not going to develop symptoms. Typically, we do say for 14 days, but uh, contact with a contact is really not necessary to do anything other than just watch your symptoms, be vigilant. I think everybody needs to be washing their hands as much as possible. Be careful about touching doorknobs and, uh, you know, commonly use things where we know the virus can stay for some period of time. Dr. Alan Jones is the chair of emergency medicine at UMMC. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Some really good information. We appreciate that. Thank you. Happy to do it. To stay current on the latest developments concerning the coronavirus in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Next, how the coronavirus creates complications for dialysis patients. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. March is National Kidney Month. Approximately 37 million Americans live with some form of kidney disease. That's according to the nonprofit American Kidney Fund. LaVarne Burton is the president and CEO of the AKF. She tells us for dialysis patients, the coronavirus adds to an already complicated situation. Without the coronavirus in the picture, a kidney disease patient, a person who's in kidney failure, either has to have beyond dialysis or have a transplant. Um, if you're on dialysis, it means that you have to go to the session about three times a week for three or four hours at a time. And it is essential that you not miss a treatment or you could put your life in danger. Can someone live on dialysis for years? Some folks, fortunately, are, do live on dialysis for years. But the average outcome um, is that a person is, lives on dialysis for about five years. 
Um, it is, you know, we have to think about dialysis that not too long ago, just a couple of decades ago, uh, being diagnosed with kidney failure was basically a death sentence because there was, there was not a way of a person getting uh, a treatment. Um, it is so such a wonderful blessing that people who are in kidney failure do have the technology now that allows them to have life sustained. We know those with pre-existing conditions, medical conditions, are more vulnerable to the effects of the coronavirus or COVID-19. How so with kidney patients? A kidney patient has not only kidney failure, but a number of other comorbidities, very often diabetes, uh, heart failure or other kinds of heart problems, anemia, a whole list of issues. So that in itself is going to make that person more vulnerable for uh, coronavirus. In addition, because you cannot skip dialysis here, you've got to get there. And so there is an immediate, not only health risk, but an immediate economic impact. If you are using public transportation to get to dialysis and suddenly you have to exercise social distance, you can't be close to people, you can't share a ride, it means that you've got to get a taxi, you've got to get a private car. Imagine what that does to your already fragile budget. And there is no choice but that you have to get there or the outcome is your death. So that's the immediate economic impact. Transportation is a huge necessity here. Um, Getting away from other people is a huge necessity because of your risk. Add to that the fact that with um, if you're in kidney failure, you have to have a special diet. You, 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 you have to eat healthy, as all of us are supposed to eat healthy. But you also <clears throat> have anemia. You may need nutritional supplements. Um, you may need a special diet so that you can get certain things out of your system, control certain things such as minerals in your system. So, and you need to get to those foods. So just on the medical side of it, think about the additional burden that's added. Of the challenges you mentioned to us um, between transportation and diet and access to food, that sort of thing, is there one that that leads the list of problems presented? Transportation, because if you don't get to your dialysis care, if you've got a transplant and you expose yourself through public transportation, um, you you are literally you're you're putting yourself at risk, tremendous risk, uh, with someone who already has multiple comorbidities. There is not a choice here of a person staying home. They have to go to get this care. They cannot shelter in place. I understand but that you also have a page that's set up for patients for information on the coronavirus virus. That's absolutely right. There is a page that's set up. It's um, you can go to the uh, American Kidney Fund. Um, let me give you first of all where patients can apply. Patients sure. can apply by going to gms.kidneyfund.org. Those who want to donate may donate at kidneyfund.org backslash emergency. All right. LaVarne Burton is the president and CEO of the American Kidney Fund. Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate it. 
Up next, mental health in the world of distancing and isolation. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. I'm Karen Brown. The anxieties of possible contagion and the loneliness of social distancing has people seeking help to cope with the emotional strain. Stephanie Smith-Jefferson is a therapist at Crossroads Counseling Center in Ridgeland. She tells our Desiree Frazier one way to manage the apprehension is to turn off the television and open up dialogue with family. One of the things we have to remember that all of us are in this together. This is new for all of us. And so with, there's a continuation of news coming up every moment with something different, something new. And so we just have to make sure one of the things to do is uh, not hold your feelings in. You need to express your feelings, your thoughts uh, about what's going on. And also sometimes we've got to disconnect from the TV and stop watching the scroll and looking at the news to see Uh, the numbers go up and up and up because that can increase your anxiety and your fear. Are you recommending that family members talk to each other more or get on the phone and share with others? Oh, yeah. I think at this time, this is a great time to reach out to your family members, to long-lost friends, um, and to reach out and talk to each other, but also with families to sit together and talk about what it is that you're feeling with your children, with other family members, husbands or wives sitting down uh, talking about what they're thinking, what are their thoughts, what are their feelings, and to express those things with each other and share them. And also with friends, church members, any organizations or whatever you're in, use it as an opportunity to verbalize what it is that you're thinking, what you're feeling, what your concerns are, all of that. And what can you share with someone to allay their concerns and maybe make you feel better? Well, here's the thing. None of us knows who's going to be the person who has that exposure. Now, that may raise your uh, anxiety, but we have to remember that there are things that we can control. There are things that we cannot control. And what you want to do is not stop living life uh, out of fear because you don't know if it's this person or that person. But what you can do is just to make sure that you're open to how you're feeling and not try to stuff it down. You can pray, you can read the Bible, you can talk to people. You need to get outside and just stand outside in nature and just soak up the sun. I know it's kind of rainy and dreary, but just get outside and get away from uh, looking at the television and looking at the numbers and all of that. So you can take walks or maybe ride a bike as long as you're not in contact with others? Yes, you can get to do that. You can walk in your neighborhood, you know, again, remembering the social distancing. You can ride a bike. Um, You can just sit outside in your own yard. For people who have mental health disorders, is this a challenging time for them, and how can you help them? This is a challenging time for all of us, whether you have a mental health disorder or not. Um, what you want to do is if you're a person who has a mental health disorder, if there's depression, if there's anxiety or, or anything, what you want to do is to get in contact with your mental health provider 
uh, maybe even schedule a session if you can, if they're still seeing uh, clients or patients, or see if you can do telemental health. But to also know that um, everybody is going to this, going through this to some extent because we're all concerned about what's going to be the outcome, how long this is going to last, what's going to be the next thing that's going to happen, you know, with social distancing, with everything being closed pretty much, how much more is going to go on, and none of us knows. Stephanie Smith-Jefferson is a therapist at Crossroads Counseling Center. The Mississippi Department of Mental Health also has a 24-hour helpline to direct people to resources for treatment and answer questions. That number is 877-210-8513. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.